tonight as we stand on the threshold of a new term and new classes and, well, new ways of fulfilling your calling in our lives. It is a wonderful thing to know that we are blessed in the faithfulness of God. As we raise our hands over this congregation tonight, we ask that you raise your hands over them with blessing, with favor, with all good grace. Help them in their studies, all of our students. Help them to realize they're not alone in this program, but we support them and you support them. Love them just now. Lord, I pray a special blessing of wisdom and insight and knowledge from on high on all of our teachers, our professors, our faculty, as they bring the truth of your word to the lives of these students. Let them be conduits of your grace. Others who are here tonight, Lord, we just ask your blessing upon them that they have a special awareness of the faithfulness of God in their lives tonight. Bless our speaker as he comes now to address critical issues of the Spirit with us. Guide and direct each one this evening so that we know God is in this place and it's His will that is being done and that is the desire of every heart. In your name, Jesus, we pray tonight. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you, David and Darren, for leading us in worship tonight. We're going to be looking at Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25 tonight. And allow me to read that passage as we begin our, our uh, look at what God has to say to us through this passage. Beginning with verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain, that is, His body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful." And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but let, let us encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. This passage begins with a strong conjunction, therefore. Whenever we read, therefore, it points us back to something that happened previous to the scripture we have read. So if you look at verses 9 through 10, we read, here I am, Jesus says, I have come to do your will. He sets aside the first. Now what is the first? The first is the insufficiency of the law to establish the second. And what is the second? the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice on the cross. And by that will, now what's the will? It is the plan of God for humankind's redemption. And by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. The writer is saying here that the result of Christ's self-offering is that we have been redeemed from a life of sin. 
But there's more coming in this passage concerning God's will for us. It's not only that we have been redeemed from a life of sin, but the author also points to a life of holiness or the sanctification of the believer as an object of God's will. We have been made holy, he says, through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. As we read in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3, it is God's will that you should be sanctified. Therefore, he says, Christ is the agent through whose sacrificial death atonement for sin is accomplished. He affects our holiness. He assures our salvation. The author writes that the Holy Spirit is the agent who gives us assurance of our salvation and sanctification. In verse 15 we read, the Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. In other words, it is the Holy Spirit that confirms within us what God has done. Amen? Then the author highlights two great promises of our newfound relationship with God. First, he refers to Jeremiah 31, 33, when he writes, This is the covenant I will make with them after that time, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts, and I will write them on their minds. In other words, the author is saying that through the testimony or the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, God provides a deep inward motivation for people to conform themselves fully to his will. What does that mean? That means when God comes to live in you in the presence of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit, it is the Holy Spirit that begins to convict you of that which is right and that is which is wrong. The second promise is found in verse 17. Their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. You see, Christ's sacrifice was the all-sufficient provision for the forgiveness of our sins. God can truly blot out our sins. He can remove them from us as far as the east is from the west. He can cast them into the sea of forgetfulness, the scripture teaches us. Or as Horatio Spafford wrote, my sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to his cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh my soul. Now, when the author writes, therefore, that's what he was talking about. You have come into a new relationship with God Almighty through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and the presence of the Holy Spirit. You are a new person in Christ. Now we get to the sermon. Therefore, therefore, because you're a new person, because Christ lives in you and the power of the Holy Spirit is guiding you, therefore, brothers and sisters, since God through Christ's sacrifice has forgiven our sins, sanctified our hearts, and given us new life, we have confidence to enter the most holy place. A few years ago, I, I had a unique privilege of touring 
the West Wing of the White House. That's a rare thing. And uh, prior to our going there, we had given our social security numbers and, and our license numbers, and we came to the gate to the West Wing, and we showed our identification, and they said, you can enter and go right down that sidewalk. Don't, don't go this way or that way. You go right down that sidewalk. We walked down that sidewalk and walked into the reception room of the West Wing. There were secret agents all around, standing at each door. And we stood there, and one of the doors flew open, and out came the uh, assistant, special assistant, assistant to the Vice President of the United States. And she proceeded to give us a tour of the West Wing. My brother David and his wife, my mom and dad and Cheryl, we were there. And we went into the cabinet room. My brother David sat in the president's chair. We looked around and we went into the, we went into the, uh, the, the, the West Wing and saw the, the press briefing room and the Roosevelt room, which was the original office of the president. And, and we went into the Rose Garden and the West Colonnade, you know, where they show the president walking to his office. And, and, and then we came to the Oval Office. We didn't get in there, but we could stay on the outside and look in. And one of the workers who had been there with several presidents began to share all of the great things that he had seen happen in that office. And then we walked out. And you say, well, how did you get that tour? Well, I can tell you it wasn't because of who I was or who my family was. It was because we knew the right person. And the right person had made it possible for us to enter into the most powerful office in the free world. Now, I say to you tonight that we are reminded that we have confidence to enter the most holy place because of who we know. Brothers and sisters, since God through Christ's sacrifice has forgiven our sins and sanctified our hearts and gave us new life, we have confidence to enter the most holy place. Now, the author turns our attention to what I consider to be some of the characteristics of, of a Christ-like disciple. In verse 22 we read, let us draw near, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith. Let us draw near. A disciple of Christ is one who draws near to God. Uh, the psalmist put it this way, he said, but as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. And then in Acts 17, we are reminded that God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him. Though, I love this, though he is not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. You see, we approach the presence of God in full assurance of our faith in Jesus Christ as our Savior. 
We approach God with absolute trust that he is in fact our refuge, fully trusting that as we reach out for him, we find him. Our, our grandson, Ethan, Ethan is eight years old now. And uh, for some reason, every time he's visited our house since he was a little baby, he would sleep with us. I mean, that was, he, that was it. Now, the problem is, as he grew up, he had another brother. And what big brother does, the next brother does. So when they come to our house, two of them sleep with us now. Well, they have another brother. And he has to do what his two older brothers do. So it's not uncommon for all five of us to be in the same bed. But as Ethan was a little boy, he had this, he had this habit that he would do. He didn't like sleeping by himself. And, and he would go, and, and somewhere around two o'clock in the morning, you would feel this hand just kind of go over your face <laughs> and down like that. And sometimes, to my wife, he would take her hand and put it on his face. What do you think Ethan was doing? You think he was making sure we were still there? You see, when we reach out and touch him, when we draw near to him, we discover he's always there. Verse 23 says, Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. This word unswervingly caught my attention unswervingly. I was riding here tonight down Powers Avenue or street or road and there was a guy that was driving swervingly. <laughs> and I said to myself and those in the car with me, hey buddy, pick a lane. <laughs> unswervingly. What does that mean? It means to be unbending steadfast, unmoved to what we profess. And the word profess can also be translated confession. So the writer says the, the Christ follower, a characteristic of the Christ follower, will be that they will be steadfast in their confession of hope. And this hope is not based on the outward circumstances or conditions of our lives. This hope is the indwelling presence of Christ. Paul wrote in Colossians 1.27, to them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery. And what is this mystery? It's Christ in you, which is the hope of glory. And in Galatians 2.20 we read, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. 
And I love Ephesians. Ephesians 3.16 says, I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now let me ask you, if that's working in your life, should you be a person of hope? Hope is a source of strong encouragement that we can hold on to. And I can tell you, you're going to need hope this semester. <laughs> so hang on to it. It will be an anchor that holds you firm and secure. Now let me tell you, we live in a confused world. And I would go so far as to say we live in a hopeless world. Uh, in my lifetime, I, I've never seen our world in the condition it's in. It's, it's, I, I'm not talking about just America. It's the, the world. Let me remind you that in a hopeless world, we as the children of God are a people of great hope. Because he who promised is faithful. Uh, my father-in-law is here tonight, Dr. Harvey Collins. Uh, Dr. Collins taught at Olivet Nazarene University for 25 years. And for 20 of those years, if you were a student at Olivet, you took his fine arts class. In fact, if you took his fine arts class, would you just lift your hand tonight? He was married to his lovely wife, Cheryl's mom, for 63 years. She was just a saint of a woman, Thelma Collins. And in January, she lost her battle with cancer and went home to be with Jesus. Um, it's still pretty raw for all of us. Um, I remember the phone call I got from Cheryl and saying that her mom, Cheryl, happened to be there, that her mom had passed. So I called our children, called Rebecca, our daughter who lives in Olathe, Kansas. Her middle boy, Graham, is, uh, he's five years old at the time. And uh, when Rebecca got off the phone, she was crying. And he came up and he said, Mommy, why are you crying? And Rebecca said, Grandma Thelma went home to be with Jesus. He got real quiet, and then he said, Mommy, do you think she could text us a picture of Jesus? <laughs> now, we, we think it's funny, and it is humorous, but I've thought about that a lot. You know, he really meant that. That wasn't a joke to him. It, it, was, it, was, it was real. Well, Mommy, if she's with Jesus, why can't she just send us a picture of him? 
And I thought a long and hard about that. I want that kind of hope. It's unfortunate that five-year-olds become 13. And 13-year-olds become 33. And 33-year-olds become 66. I said, God, give me a simple, childlike hope like little Graham had. Verse 24 says, And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. It's interesting now, the writer moves from a focus of, on, on God to a focus on each other. That's, that's very interesting to me. And, and he, he, he uses a word that um, really captured my attention. Spur one another on. I think what he's saying is that we're not in this journey toward Christ's likeness alone. We have each other. We have this sense of community. Uh, and, and this community has a responsibility to spur one another on, to encourage each other. Uh, this, when I hear this word spur, it reminds me of, of, of a cowboy and, and spurs attached to the heels of their boots. I remember I was walking in Tulsa, Oklahoma one, one day in the mall, and I saw this, this, this guy, cowboy, walking down the mall with spurs on. And I thought to myself, I know he didn't ride a horse here. How do you drive a pickup truck with spurs on? With spurs, you know what a spur's for, right? You, you, you kind of, unless you're riding a bull trying to hold on, you're, you're, you're spurring that horse on, right? You get up and go. Let's go. Move forward. You spur them. Move them forward. Um, reminds me of my second church. I was a young guy. I was a young guy, and I was so excited. Man, I was, I was in a church that had a choir, and I was just so excited. And, and all of my ideas never had a period. One idea just ran into the other. And I was, I was just going 90 miles an hour. Finally, this old-timer took me aside, and he put his arm around me, and he just loved on me. And then he said to me, he said, now, Pastor, let me, just, let me just tell you something. You better make sure that you're settled in your saddle before you go spurring your horse. <laughs> and I never forgot that. And, and I think what the writer is saying here is that we need to be able to spur each other on. When somebody's lagging or somebody's not, not, not being or doing what they should be doing, we, we need to be an encouragement to them to say, you can do this. And I'm going to tell you something. I'll tell you how you get NB, through NBC. You get through NBC because you have, you have classmates that spur you on. But let me just stop there. You have faculty that love you, care for you, and they're going to spur you on. I mean, if you, they're going to they're be there walking with you. I think that's the uniqueness of this place, is, is that we, we're going we're to walk with you all the way and spur you on. And uh, 
That's what Gary Haynes does. You know Gary. Gary was an itinerant evangelist from Church of the Nazarene for nearly 40 years until his childhood polio came back and started really getting him again. And, and, uh, and he just couldn't get on planes anymore. And, and he, he, he felt like he had some usefulness for the kingdom. So we brought him in. You know what Gary does? How many of you have ever received an email from Gary Haynes or a phone call? Did that encourage you? Well, he does that every day from Monday through Friday, 8, 8 to 12. He does that all over the country. He called a guy one day, let me tell you, a guy one day, a truck driver out in California. He's ready to quit. He threw up his hands. I can't do this. I can't work and do this. It's impossible. He pulled off the side of the road and he was crying and calling out to God, what am I going to do? And his cell phone rang. You know who it was? Gary Haynes. And Gary Haynes basically said, you can run, but you can't hide. <laughs> Let us spur one another. I believe that's a strong characteristic of a Christ-like disciple. Let me give you one more. Verse 25. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another all the more as you see the day approaching. Now, we don't know why they were, they were giving up assembling together. We don't, we don't know why. I mean, there's a lot of speculation on that. I'll not go into it. I can understand because there was great persecution. There was some heresy being taught, even disillusionment, because those people thought that the day they woke up that morning, Jesus was going to return. And it wasn't happening. So, you know, they, they were losing, losing some of their hope, and they were just kind of missing out on the fellowship. And I, but this is what I know. This is what I know. The writer is saying there is great danger to the believer when they slip away from the community of faith. And that's the warning. And a Christ-like disciple is one who's going to be engaged in the body of Christ, for it's there that we find help, support, and love. Well, then, a Christ-like disciple will draw near to God, will hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, will consider how we may spur one another on, and will not give up meeting together. The first time I came in a car to Colorado Springs, I, I, I got off of I-70 in Lyman. How many have ever done that? And I started my way toward Colorado Springs. And, and I looked up and I, and I thought, well, where is the mountain? And, and then I would get a little closer and then it looked like a cloud. And then the closer I got, the cloud began to take the shape of the mountain. And then as I got closer, the mountain got bigger. It's really amazing to me. I, I, I drive down Powers to work, and, and when I turn on airport, how much bigger the mountain looks to me than it does out there on Powers. It, it just seems to me that the closer I get to the mountain, the bigger the mountain seems. 
And then, if you do what I did yesterday and drive your car up Ute Pass, you're not only seeing how majestic the mountain is, you're surrounded by it. So it is with God. From a distance, he seems so unfamiliar. But as you draw near to him, you you find yourself embraced by his majesty, his strength, his refuge, his presence, his love. So, lift up your eyes to the hills. Where does your help come from? Your help comes from the Lord, who is the maker of that mountain. He will not let your foot slip. He who watches over you will not slumber. Indeed, he who watches over you is not going to go to sleep on you. The Lord watches over you. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun will not harm you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all harm. He will watch over your life. The Lord will watch over your coming and going both now and forevermore. Amen? Amen. Let's stand together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the promise of your word that as we draw near to you, and we can do that because of the work of Jesus Christ in our heart and life, and as we draw near to you, we find that you're always there. And we find that you are always bigger than whatever we are facing. Oh God, thank you for this great promise that as we live as Christ-like disciples, we will know you, know your love, sense your goodness, and become like Jesus. Thank you, Father. Thank you so much. And I pray for our students this year as they begin a brand new year. Oh, God, May this be a wonderful year of learning and growing in Christ Jesus. Pray for our faculty. Thank you for their scholarship. But I thank you most of all for their spirit and their love of you. And may you bless them this year as they teach our students. And God, we want to tell you that above all else, we love you. And we thank you for our Savior, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit that lives in us. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen and amen. God bless you. Go in his peace.